men need to be challenged and men need to have deeper conversations. Men need to be authentic and vulnerable with each other. And I think a lot of men view that as like, oh, wow, that's a very feminine, emotional thing to do to be authentic and vulnerable with a man. That's not the case. In fact, the strongest and most courageous thing you'll do is to interact like that with a man. Welcome to the Parenting ADHD Podcast, where I share insights and strategies on raising kids with ADHD straight from the trenches. I'm your host, Penny Williams. I'm a parenting coach, author, ADHD-aholic, and mindset mama, honored to guide you on the journey of raising your atypical kid. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Parenting ADHD Podcast. I'm so excited today to be talking to Larry Hagner of the Dad Edge Podcast. And we're going to talk about his story in raising a child with ADHD and all about dads and how to better engage and understand what our kids are going through who have ADHD and better connections with family and all sorts of really valuable insights and information for dads. Thanks so much for being here, Larry. I'm so honored to have you on the podcast and to talk about dads today. Yeah, let's do it. Let's talk about dads. Absolutely. (laughs) Good to be here. Thank you so much for coming on. You came on my show as well. And that was fun. We had a really good time. Yes, we always have good conversations. So I'm really looking forward to it. Do you want to start just by introducing yourself? Let everyone know who you are and what you do. Sure. So my name is Larry Hagner. I am the host and founder of the, as you were saying, the Dad Edge podcast. I'm also the founder of Good Dad Project, which is basically just our umbrella organization. Dad Edge is really more the brand and and what we do. And uh, I'm married. I've been married for 17 years. I have four boys, which are uh, four. (laughs) <laughs> 14, 12, 6, and 4. And if you ever want to know what it's like raising four boys, just imagine a drunk fraternity party that you never leave, that everyone wants to uh, wants to eat your food, pee on the walls, and uh, never go to sleep. Yeah. Wow. Your wife's a saint. She is a martyr. With a, <laughs> without a doubt, she's a martyr. There's a special place in heaven. Absolutely. How did you get started in doing this work? So it really comes down to my own struggle as a father and just some of the things that I went through as a kid growing up. You know, I I didn't really know my biological father, even though my parents were married for about five years. He, they got divorced when I was about one. And then my mom got remarried when I was five. And then my dad and I got reunited when I was 12 and we hung out for about six months and then we drifted apart again. And Mm. then uh, I didn't meet him again until I was 30. And that was by total accident. I was in a Starbucks with a friend, 30 years old. And who came walking in the Starbucks to get his morning coffee? It was my father. And we had a conversation and that was 15 years ago. And we've had a relationship ever since. And my mom, just going back to my child, yeah, crazy. But my, my mom was married three times. Uh, she dated men in between. So I spent half of my childhood without a father figure. And then the other half, the, whatever man was involved in my mom's life, usually was there was some sort of toxicity. There was some sort of alcoholism, drug use, abuse. I mean, so 
Mm. It was a bit crazy. And, and I really started Good Dad Project That Edge because of my own struggles as a father. And I was, you know, just headed down a, a really dark path and was able to turn things around just more or less by starting the podcast and the blog and just being a student of fatherhood. And I never would have thought in a million years it would be where it's at today, but I thank God that it is. Yeah, you were being intentional. That's when the good stuff happens, when we're really focused and going forward with intention. You know, you decided to be really intentional about your fatherhood and it's amazing. It's amazing what just taking a second to think about what we're doing and to move forward with purpose, how much different that really makes things. It does make a huge difference when you're intentional and, and purposeful. And I mean, that makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. And not just in our parenting, but for our own lives. You know, they're more rewarding and fulfilling when we feel like we're achieving what we want to achieve, not just in the sense of goals and financial stability and those sorts of things, but just in general, you know, achieving real connection with our families is really not only valuable and empowering, but it kind of, it gives that warm fuzzy, right? It, it provides that really good, happy, fulfilled feeling. Uh, absolutely. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your journey with ADHD? So I have a personal journey myself, and then I also have, uh, my oldest has it as well. So my own personal journey, I mean, when I'm 45, so back, uh, back when I was younger, I, I struggled in school terribly, uh, absolutely terribly, so much so that I actually failed the eighth grade and had Ooh. to repeat. And so, that, I mean, that was really tough. I mean, it's one thing to be held back when you're really, really young, but it's another thing to be held back when you're older and especially that transition from eighth grade to high school. Mm -hmm. It was really, really crazy. And what I can tell you is that I definitely had issues with with just focusing on school. It was like there there was just so much information coming at me. I mean, I went to a a private grade school, so we had a lot of work, a lot of homework, uh, and you know, I could not focus on really anything. It was really really tough, and uh, you know, I struggled like I said in school until I can until probably junior year of high school. Like no kidding around, my grades really struggled. I was never medicated. I never had an IEP. Um, I did have some tutoring here and there that helped me. But one thing that I realized when I was in high school is that I just learned and sort of, I, I learned information differently. So if I looked at the teacher and watched him or her teach, I would lose focus. You know, if I looked around the room, what I did learn is that I was a more auditory learner. So what I would do was, and some teachers didn't really realize it, but then my, you know, my grades were fine, so I didn't really get any slack about it. But I would literally keep my head down and I would put my hand kind of over my eyes, like right around my eyebrows. And then I would listen to the words that the teacher would say. And then I would write, I would take like meticulous notes. So if I heard it, heard it, reflected, and then wrote it, I was able to learn it better. And I was also one of those people where test taking was really, really tough for me. So what I did was, is I went above and beyond when it came to studying. I studied long hours because that's how I was able to memorize material. And I did flashcards a lot because what I realized 
I don't know if it was an ADHD brain or what it was, but I could remember writing things down. So I would write questions down, put the answers on the back, and then the flashcards would allow me to see the question. And then I would memorize what it looked like on the back. So that's what actually helped me memorize information. I did that all the way up until I graduated college and I graduated with honors. But it took a while to really understand like how I learned because I learned very differently than people around me. Yeah. And it's amazing that you had the motivation to do it. So many kids with ADHD in school, they get really discouraged by the time they hit 10th or 11th grade and stop feeling like you know, they start feeling like no matter how hard they try, they're not going to succeed because they do learn differently. And the yeah. expectation is outside of really what they're capable of. And just in a difference, not in a way that they're not intelligent or not capable, they just have to do it differently. And so, you know, a lot, I see so many, and my own son included, the beginning of junior year, he just quit. He quit trying. He just gave up. He was like, I've tried so hard. Nobody even acknowledges how hard I've tried. I still barely pass and I'm so done, you know? And so it's been a real battle. It's amazing that you were able to really fight for it. I mean, you really did. You fought for yourself and you really achieved because of it. And I think too, it had to have been great for your self-confidence and self-esteem to finally figure out how to do for yourself and learn and succeed in that way. It, it was. I mean, it just, it took forever because they didn't really have the resources that they do mm-hmm. today. You know, you were just pretty much labeled as an idiot. <laughs> yeah. Well. You know, like, oh, like he's just, he's, he's dumb. You know, he, uh, he doesn't really understand it. He really doesn't get it. He's behind. He's this, he's that. So yeah, kind of, kind of crazy. That's awesome though. It's a good motivational story for a lot of other kids who are struggling in school that, you know, there is a way for you to succeed. You just have to figure it out. And I'll say it's it's a very different culture in school now as far as special education and learning differently, but we still have an unbelievable amount to go to really understanding kids with learning differences and providing what they need. You know, my son's struggle has always been that he has a really high IQ. He's super intelligent, but he can't focus. He, his working memory is terrible. His processing speed is a third of his IQ equivalency. And he has dysgraphia, so he can't write anything that's legible. And, you know, so he was just so wildly misunderstood because it, it's such a dichotomy to have a kid who's almost brilliant and who can't do a simple worksheet, right? It was successfully. And it's just really hard to figure out how to navigate that for for kids, for teens, and even younger kids who are going through it. You know, it's it's always easier to give up, right? And and they fall into that trap so often. So it's it's such a great thing for you to share your story and for them to have these stories that really show that if you fight for yourself, you really can succeed. But it's kind of up to you. And not entirely, you know, again, we need schools on board, we need teachers who understand, you know, we need some of those accommodations and so forth. But it is up to you to decide if you are willing to do the work, if you're willing to fight for it. 
So it's Amen an amazing to that. story. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's true for all of us, right? We all have to figure out what we want to fight for and what we're willing to put the work into. How much are you willing to share about your son? Is there anything you want to share with everyone about what his um, ADHD experience has been like so far and what your experience has been like as his dad? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so my son, my oldest son, is the one who's been officially diagnosed and literally, he is, we are exactly like, I mean, we are literally like two peas in a pod. So, you know, he doesn't have an intelligence issue at all. I mean, he has a processing issue. So um, what I can tell you is, and he has an IEP. And, you know, I love the fact that he, these school systems now, they have extra help available that I didn't have growing up. So, yeah. you know, he he does get pulled out of class and he does have extra help in math and reading, which is great. And, you know, he gets to take some extra time on tests and that kind of thing. And, the, you know, it's, he's, he's at that age now, right now, he's, he's 14. So he's very, very attuned to the fact that he gets pulled out of class. And now he's, before it wasn't really a big deal. He's like, oh, you know, I just, you know, but now it's like, wow, like, am I dumb? Am I this? Am I that? I'm like, no, like not at all. And what I can tell you is that he gets overwhelmed with information just like I used to. So the cool thing about having a son who struggles with the same things that I did and he also actually had to repeat first grade. So we held him back in first grade. He just was struggling really bad. So we're like, you know what? Let's let's hold him back now instead of later. You know, give him another shot. And now he's he's pretty much all caught up. His grades are actually fine. But I do see that he gets very frustrated and stressed out when there's a lot of things to do. So my job with him is number one, the first thing I do is is empathy, right? I, yep. I don't get upset with him. I don't get mad at him. You know, when he wants to get angry, what I do with him is like, I can see you're upset and, and you're frustrated. And I, you know what, to be honest, I told, I remember being in your shoes. So I understand what it's like to want to lose your mind, throw your book out the window. And, you know, cause you're so frustrated, you know, would you have any objection to me showing you some t tips and tricks that have helped me over the years, but just took me a long time to learn. So empathy, kind of meeting him where he's at, that calms him down. Just to know that like, hey, my dad and my parents, they understand where I'm at. And the other thing that I... So I, like, so for instance, with reading, right? If he has to do reading comprehension and he reads an entire passage and then he gets to the question, he's like, I have no idea what the answer to this question is. So what I usually do is like, I'll just say, hey, listen, re, you know, let's read the questions first. And just kind of get an idea of what, what information you're going to need to get from reading this passage. And then the other thing I do too is I'm like, Ethan, you know, hey, there's there's like three or four or five keywords in this question that you can go find these three, three or five keywords that are in the passage. So instead of reading it all again and, and going through everything again, maybe find a subtitle or maybe find these words in a paragraph. And then that's where you're going to find your answer. Instead of like looking at three pages of words, look for the three to five keywords you can remember. And that's probably where you're going to find your answer. And just things like that, that I can tell have really helped him like lower the amount of stress, lower the amount of like, oh my gosh, this is so much work. So that's really helped him a ton is, is just being able to break things down and not be so overwhelmed by the volume of work that he has. And then the other thing too, is, is as far as like a confidence thing goes, I, I have like pounded this into his head. 
And I always say, Ethan, grades are not the end-all be-all measure of how smart you are. There's not. They're, they're a piece, like a, and, and actually a small piece. If you look at some of the most successful minds on the planet, they were average students, you know, and that's okay. So you can go out and be successful. And the, and the example I use with him is I was like, dude, the smartest people that were in my high school, the smartest people that were in my grade school, that grades just came super easy. I can name several of them that are not successful in life. You know, it's, they're not, they're not, they're not out there creating things. You know, they're, they're out there doing, you know, a regular job, like even though they're quote unquote smart and brilliant compared to their grades, but that's not a measure of how successful you're going to be or how smart you are. So I, I constantly reinforce that, that please don't, don't base, you know, your level of intellect on your grades because that's not the measure. It's not the end all be all. Yeah, some kids just aren't good at school because it's not the right fit, not because they're not intelligent, not even because they're not learning. You know, if my son had been quizzed verbally instead of given written tests, he would have monumentally better grades because he's verbally fluent off the charts. You know, his verbal fluency is up there with his intelligence. But once you start putting it on paper, and you have writing and you have working memory and you have all these other skills that he struggles with, it's, it's a completely different ballgame and then he feels incapable. So really finding the ways that um, celebrate who our kids are and allow them to succeed. You know, I talk to parents all the time, you have to give your kids opportunities to succeed. And if you have a child who's different, who struggles with learning or social skills or anything like that, you have to be very intentional with crafting these opportunities, you know, whether it's getting that IEP, doing tutoring, you know, finding an ally in the school, or even for activities outside of school, like scouts, for instance, maybe your child is kind of behind socially. Maybe it would be better and they would be more able to succeed in that environment if they were with a scout troop that was more younger instead of being the youngest one in an older troop. You know, things like that. You just have to really understand who your child is. Like you said, really meet them where they are to help them to have these opportunities to succeed. And even the neuroscience now is backing the fact that the more positive experiences we have, that's the way our brain is making neural connections. The more negative experiences we have, it's wiring to that negative. So, you know, it's, it's monumentally important, not just for their self-esteem and self-confidence, but kind of for the way that they move through the world, whether they're going to move through on a more positive stance or a more negative stance. So, super valuable that you're really able to understand what he's going through. I mean, so many kids with ADHD don't necessarily have a parent who gets it. I don't have ADHD. I've kind of made it my life's work to understand as much as I can to help my child, but to actually have that experience, to have that insight of actually you know, living a similar path is amazing for your son. I think it makes your connection to him stronger too, I'm sure. 
It, it totally does. I mean, just the fact that, you know, we understand each other, that he has someone who supports him, who is empathetic. I mean, I remember my mom getting so angry with me, the fact when I, when I wasn't making grades or, mm-hmm. you know, getting frustrated. But the thing is, I, I don't blame her for that because like back, back when I was a kid, I mean, you're talking like 35 years ago when I was really struggling we didn't have the awareness. We didn't have the resources. Like parents didn't really, they had no idea what to do. They were just like, wow, like my kid just isn't smart. Like how defeating is that? And as a parent, I mean, even like with the whole COVID thing going on and now suddenly every parent out there is thrusted into homeschooling and now you're a teacher. I mean, trying to even teach seventh grade math to my kid was like, I was like, oh my gosh. Like I I would tell my kids all the time. I was like, I know how to do this, but I don't know how to teach you how to do this because we're not really taught how to teach it. We're just taught how to do it. And that's like a totally different animal. So I can't even imagine being a parent when I was a kid trying to, you know, help these kids figure out homework because it was totally different. You know, we didn't have the resources we do now. Yeah. Yeah. They were really kind of swept under the rug almost. And, you know, I think back to when I was in high school. And I had some sort of volunteer credit class or something where I worked in the special ed department in the middle school next door. And I think back now and all the kids who were identified who were in those programs were much more obviously disabled, right? So the kids with ADHD, the kids who are more sort of high functioning, which I hate that term, but... Um, they were probably, and I'm sure this was your experience, just in class with everybody else, trying to figure it out and nobody noticing that it was a whole lot harder for them. Uh, totally agree. I mean, it, I think kind of going back to what we had then and what we have now, I think parents can really do a really good job of educating themselves on just resources and tactics and techniques and just understanding like how these these kids' brains just work just a little bit differently. And the thing that you know we we I know in your show that you constantly hit home is look, your kid is not dumb. Okay. Your kid is most likely brilliant. Their brains just work differently. And that and that's okay. Right? I mean that's totally okay. If you look and I don't want to get on a tirade about the school system, but if you look at one area of life and history, look at all the things that have evolved over the years. Technology has evolved. Parenting has evolved. Like, you know, the workforce has evolved. And the one thing that hasn't really evolved in years is the way we teach kids in school. It is still the same way, pretty much the same way it was when I was a kid. It's pretty much the same way it was when my parents were kids. It's one thing that we just haven't evolved. Now, I will say this. I think public school systems have gotten better about being, you know, IEPs and identifying kids who need extra help. And then you usually have state, you know, uh, state support behind you when it comes to identifying and recording you know, what exactly is necessary. You can get advocates now, which is great. So there's all kinds, there's a whole host of different resources now that we didn't have, but still overall, we haven't really evolved the school system, you know, to really match what maybe kids need these days, even the kids that quote unquote fit in that box and they, they, they do well in the system, they could still probably do a better job. You know, if you ask me. 
I could totally jump on that tirade with you. We have not changed the way we teach in a hundred years. You know, it's it was started as creating workers who did what they were told and all did the same thing, you know, for assembly lines and factories and things like that. And and it it's really still completely a system of conformity. We're still not teaching kids to think for themselves, to think outside the box, to do things differently. It's all, this is the one way you do this. And this is these are the things you have to learn. And it's a real struggle, especially for kids who don't get really interested or excited unless it's a topic that's of interest. We've really struggled with that too. You know, if in um, sophomore math last year, he was struggling so much with it. And he was like, I'm never going to do this ever. I'm never going to do this again. The three things on my list that I might want to have as a job or a career in my life, none of them require this math. So why do I have to do it now? You know, it's hard. It's really hard. And our education system definitely needs to evolve. We need to start teaching individuals instead of, you know, just the system of conformity. But yeah, we could, I'm sure, both go on for days about that. Oh, yeah, I'm sure we could. (laughs) Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about fatherhood. The only experience that I know, of course, is motherhood. And I think fatherhood is a completely different experience. And sometimes fathers aren't as involved in the day-to-day kind of ADHD management, like doctor's appointments and medication checkups and therapy appointments and things like that. Maybe not even IEP meetings or school meetings. And so, I think it's really important, again, we're going to talk about this intention and purpose to really go forward, making an effort to be really connected to what's going on, even if you're not necessarily part of that day-to-day machine of managing ADHD. Yeah. So where where would you like to start? How can, how can I best serve like the fatherhood voice out there? I'm probably talking to an audience full of moms, maybe. No, I and you know, I think we have dads for sure. And I'm seeing a lot more dads in our community, which is amazing. And I find that a lot of moms who listen or participate or even take my courses will then, you know, get dad involved. Oh, look, oh, you've got to hear this, or you know, they they're passing it on, so to speak. So I think connection is the most powerful thing we have as human beings for a multitude of things, not just fulfillment and happiness, but also it it calms our autonomic nervous system, which helps our brains function better. You know, it's it's really powerful stuff. And so how do dads really genuinely connect with their kids and make sure that they're kind of maintaining that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So luckily I, I've been in this dad space for years. We've got almost 600 episodes on, on dad edge podcasts that we've done. Wow. And so it's been a, what I always say is I, I'm no fatherhood expert, but I've got a front row seat to an, an amazing education. And we've had experts from all walks of life, anything from parenting to Navy SEALs, to pro athletes, to, uh, you know, experts like yourself with it, you know, who, who, share knowledge on, on ADHD, anxiety, uh, depression, all kinds of different things. And here's what I can tell you. A couple of quotes that I think really resonate with fathers is, without connection, you have no influence. Without connection, 
you have no influence. So what does that mean? You know, you can really do a disservice to the connection with your kid by getting in the weeds of, of frustration and anger when it comes to schoolwork. Now, here's what I'll say. I, I mean, there's a caveat. Every kid is different. Not every kid fits in a box. And to be honest, I, I don't know how to raise a kid who's given up on school because I haven't faced that yet. So I'm not speaking yeah. to the fathers or the parents who are like, hey, I can't even get my kid to do anything. Luckily, with our kids, they still have drive and motivation to, to do well in school, even when they get frustrated with it. So here's what I'll say when it comes to fatherhood and fathers and that kind of thing. Um, get your hands dirty, number one. Get in the weeds of these IEP meetings you know, ask good questions, you know, come to the table, you know, asking for more help from these teachers during these IEP meetings, you know, force yourself to understand, you know, what exactly, you know, because ADHD can be a variety of different things. So understand what exactly does my kid struggle with? So like, I understand that my, my son has a, has a problem with, with, with uh, processing, and here's the cool thing. I mean, if you're a dad listening to this, I, th- I, I think it's safe to say, again, you would probably know better than me, but ADHD affects more men, more, more males than it does females. So being a father, the, the chances of you, you know, growing up with ADHD and then having a, a child with ADHD is pretty high. Yes. So allow your own, your own experiences to, to, sh- to, to use empathy with your kids and you know what does that look like what does tactical empathy look like tactical empathy is not sympathy i'm so sorry you feel that way i'm so sorry you're having problems in school that's pity and your kids don't want pity you know they want to be understood they want to be heard they want to be connected so the thing that i always use you know men need a map we need guidance the one thing that I, and i talk about this individual all the time because like literally he's changed my life but if you if you ever want to pick up an, a fascinating amazing book on communication it will help you in your marriage work even dealing with a kid who has adhd pick up the book never split the difference by chris voss chris voss was the chief hostage negotiator for the fbi and his book is a crash course like phd in communication one chapter in particular is tactical empathy and I love that word, those two words, tactical empathy, because it sounds cool. It sounds masculine. Right. It sounds like a dad thing, right? Tactical empathy. Totally. So, you know, what does that look like? Tactical empathy is when someone is acting in a certain way and you're like, wow, there's a lot of emotion here. There's a lot of things going on. And one thing that I will tell you, no matter if it's your kid, if it's your wife, if it's your coworker or whatever, however someone is reacting, responding or behaving, it makes total sense to them in that moment. So like the fact that my kid is getting like irate with the fact that he can't finish his homework and and there's so many words on this page and he's overwhelmed and he is literally used the words, I want to throw my computer out the window, dad. So instead of being like, dude, don't get so upset. Why are you getting so upset? This is easy. You can read through this This is seventh grade stuff, man. All you got to worry about is school. Where do you get a full-time job? Right? I mean, that's, that's how we talk to these kids. It is. So if you can use the words like sounds like, feels like, looks like, any one of those three phrases, sounds like, looks like, feels like, fill in whatever emotion you might see that your kid is displaying and then allow, allow them to, to talk. So like, so for instance, if I see my son getting irate, do I get my feathers ruffled? Sure. Because I'm like, I, man, I just want you to calm down. But I don't say that. Like Ethan, feels like you're really overwhelmed right now. You know, is that accurate? Yeah, it's accurate. Like, I, I'm really overwhelmed, Dad. I'm really, really stressed out. 
brother, I understand exactly where you're coming from. When I was your age in seventh grade, I thought I was going to lose my mind when I was trying to do reading comprehension. So many words on the page and then trying to go back to the questions. And I'm just like, oh, I just want to pull my hair out. Is that where you're at? Yeah, that's where I'm at. Okay. Now that we know where you're at, how can dad best help you right now? What, what feels right to you? And sometimes, sometimes he's in that headspace of like, I don't know. I just don't know. I don't know what you can do. Okay. You know what? Do you mind if I share some things that have worked for me? They took me a long time to learn and it worked for me. And perhaps maybe if I go over some tips and tricks that have worked for me and I've had to learn it the hard way, maybe we can shorten your learning curve and you, you're, you're not as frustrated as dad was growing up. So what do you say? Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. And then I'll go into, here's how we can go through this. But when, when, you, when you start with that, sounds like, looks like, feels like, seems like, whatever, uh, seems like you're really overwhelmed right now. What that does is your, your kid is now connected to you. Wow, dad, dad sees me. Dad understands me. Uh, I, I feel safe you know, displaying whatever emotion is going on in my head. And I don't feel shame and guilt. They already feel stupid. Right. Yeah. And and getting mad at them not only makes them feel stupid, but now discouraged. So don't do that. They want to feel connected to you. So if you can use tactical empathy to connect with your kid and then, you know, start asking really good questions. How can I best help you right now? What what, what feels right to you? I mean, the chances are they might be so escalated that they won't be able to tell you, but then you'll be able to go over through some suggestions. But I, I think tactical empathy is a really, really big one. I also think that. Here's a big one, Penny, and I know you probably already know this. I never, and I don't care what kid it is. I don't care if it's my 14-year-old who struggles with ADHD. I don't care if it's my 12-year-old who, by the way, school comes so easy to him, it's not even funny. Or if it's my other kids, I will never, ever, ever, ever congratulate them on their grade, ever. Even Mm -hmm. if they got an A plus on a test, I, I will never say, you are so smart. Good job on that A plus. No. Never. And let me explain why. When you do that, you're praising your kid for a result. You're not praising them for work. You're not praising them for studying. You're not praising them for how much, how much time it took for them to put into that to get that grade. What I say is, wow, you know, you must have worked so hard to get that. Tell me what you did that that result happened. You got an A plus on that test. What, what kind of work went into that? Because I'm sure you probably put in some hours to do that. And then that kid will then definitely will articulate, yeah, here's what I did. Boom, 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 boom. Versus like, oh, you're so smart. A plus, you're so smart. I don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. Always praise effort and the work that's put in, not the result. Exactly. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And, and, you're doing a lot of reflective listening and you by asking, you know, tell me what you did that helped you to get that result. You're reinforcing that work in, in their minds, you know, you're pointing it out again so that later when they come to a similar situation, they can pull from that. They're going to remember, Oh yeah, I did this and this. I, I worked really hard. I really, you know, fought my disinterest, whatever it was to do well with this thing. And, you know, the more experiences they have that are positive, the more we focus on the action, the better able they are in later circumstances to pull from that, to maybe repeat that. 
And I'm a huge proponent of empathy. I think it's the number one parenting tool, validation and empathy. I never knew there was a term for it called tactical empathy, but I love it. And it's everything. You know, it is really easy for us to react in the way that you said. And that's the key. It's reacting instead of really responding with intention when our our kids often look like they are overreacting. They often look like they're making a mountain out of a molehill, right? And what we have to understand is that's true for them in that moment. That is a true, honest feeling. That is what they are going through. That is what they are internalizing, what they are experiencing. And acknowledging that is super, super powerful because it does. It shows that they can trust us. It shows that we understand what is going on with them, where they are, what they're struggling with. It's monumentally powerful, really in the world in general, but definitely with our kids. Um, I call the the phrase, how can I help you, the magic phrase for ADHD and autism, because you know we're saying, okay, I see where you are. I understand how you're feeling, or at least acknowledge how you're feeling. What can I do? I want to help you. I don't want to tell you to behave better or to stop whining about something that isn't important. I want to show you that I get it and I want to help. And I've learned recently that we really have to take that a step further to how can I help you help yourself? Because now our kids are teens, they're working toward independence, and we need to be furthering that, that ability for them to step back in those moments and be able to figure out what they need for themselves as well, because someday they're going to have to use that. So again, I, I agree. Empathy is the number one most powerful parenting tool strategy. It's amazing. It is. I mean, because at the end of the day, I mean, our kids need guidance. You know, we, we have to guide them, but sometimes shaming them, well, not sometimes, shaming them into a behavior, I think is a temporary fix. Now, am I guilty of that? Oh my God. Yeah. No. You know, when it, when it, when it comes to some things, but I, I, I can honestly say without a shadow of a doubt that I, I don't do that with school. I did do that once. Um, and to be honest, I, I wish I could erase this off my son's hard drive of his, of his mind, of his brain. So my son was in, he's now, he's going to be in eighth grade when he was in fourth grade. And this is a really vulnerable story and, you know, and full transparency of, of how our own fears can literally like just wreck a moment. And this was before I was really podcasting. I had just gotten started. I didn't know much about ADHD. And I looked at my son more through the eyes of he was lazy and more through the eyes of like, why don't you understand this? And he was in fourth grade and he was in fourth grade. He, he brought home homework. He was throwing a fit that he didn't want to do it. And I looked at him and I banged my fist on the table and I said, you better do your homework. I was like, because you cannot afford to do another grade over again. Do you understand me? And like, and I could tell like by look on his face, like it, it got to him, but I didn't realize how much it got to him. And I would say every now and again, like, Hey dad, do you remember that time 
And I'm like, I was like, man, I was like, look, I, I, I wish I could take that back. Like, I wouldn't have said that if I would have been better educated on what was going on for you. I was like, that was me looking through the lens of my own past and how horrible it was for me to repeat a grade. And like, that was my own fear coming out in anger to yell at you, to motivate you, because I didn't want you to experience what I experienced, which is doing a grade over again. And that was my, that was my stuff. That was my own baggage, not yours. But I, I wish, you know, if, if anything, if anything, I wish I could take that all over again, you know, but I, unfortunately I just can't and it just really sucks, but it is what it is. And all you can do is what you know. And when you know better, you do better. And I think it's so important for our kids to see us make mistakes. They need to understand that everybody makes mistakes. And our traditional culture of parenting, we are supposed to look perfect. We're never supposed to let our kids see us make mistakes. But it's so valuable for them to know that everybody makes mistakes. No one is perfect. And to see you, you know, to handle that the best way that you could to make an apology to, you know, express that you wish you could take it back, you know, that shows him what real life is like. We all say things we wish we could take back at times. We all make mistakes. We all do the wrong things. I tell my kids all the time about the really stupid things I did when I was a teenager and in college because I don't want to see them repeat those things, you know, and I want them to know that we're real people. We were in their shoes once or in similar shoes. We were their age and we made mistakes just like they're going to make mistakes. It's so important. And I think even, you know, having that conversation more than once about that one thing that happened because it hurt you so deeply that that you went there is is important for him to really understand that you're human too and that you I think he realizes that you didn't mean it in the way that it felt at this point because you've had that conversation and again all you can do is what you know to do you know I talked to so many parents with so many regrets and if you were doing the best that you could do, how can you fault yourself for that? We have to give ourselves grace and dads too. And I, it's just amazing to me that we still try so hard to look perfect for our kids. And it's totally culturally ingrained in us to do it. And yet, it's so much more helpful to our kids if we don't, if we don't look perfect to them which seems a little counterintuitive, but it's really not. Anything else that you want to make sure that we talk about for our dads listening before we close the show? Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, the last thing I'll say about dads is men in general are notorious about living life on their own. In other words, we're surrounded physically by people uh, all day long, yet mentally and emotionally, we, we sort of live on our own mm. <laughs> isolated, isolated island. Every Every question that you ask us, we usually respond with good or fine. How's life? Fine. How's work? Good. How's the family? Fine. You know, so it's like the the older men get, 
we have this, we have relationships, what I like to call, well, actually not what I like to call, this is not mine. Uh, Stephen Mansfield, New York Times bestselling author of Building a Band of Brothers, also Mansfield book of manly men and now his newest book men on fire he talks about these what's called rust relationships which it's kind of like your college buddies or high school buddies or maybe even people you work with where you talk about the same five things same shallow five things that you always talk about and it's always over a beer because we don't know how to even interact unless we've got <laughs> some sort of and don't get me wrong like i like to drink every now and again too but it's almost like men don't know how to relate unless they are drinking right so what, I, what I'll tell you is that one of the best things you can do as a man is to create a tribe, a band of brothers that will support you that are not only like know you, but man, they are in your life. They're asking you questions like, hey, man, how are you and Jessica doing? Like, how's communication? Are you guys dating, you know, dating each other? Are you, are you having good conversations? Are you being intimate? Like, how, how are your finances? Like, how are those things going? How's your stress level? How's your patience with your kids? Are you connecting with them? You know, it's just men need to be challenged and men need to have deeper conversations. Men need to be authentic and vulnerable with each other. And I think a lot of men view that as like, oh, wow, that's a very feminine, emotional thing to do to be authentic and vulnerable with a man. That's not the case. In fact, the strongest and most courageous thing you'll do is to interact like that with a man. And let me clarify real quick what authentic and vulnerable really means. It is not weak. It's not you weeping and crying and like, I just want to talk about my feelings. It is not that way at all. Being authentic and vulnerable is like, hey man, um, I really want to elevate my marriage with Jessica. And I see, I see you and Penny you know, really communicating well. You guys seem like you're so in love help a brother out, man. Like, what are y'all doing? Like, give me a day in the life so I understand and what I can do, you know, in my marriage. What, what do you got? What you're doing is when you're asking for help or you're asking for assistance, you've just complimented the heck out of that guy. And you did it in a very masculine way. And you've opened up now the relationship to what I like to call an authentic relationship that isn't talking about what Trump just tweeted out or what, what you did on the weekend or what sport your kid is in. Like those are real conversations and every guy shoulder to shoulder, face to face with you, we want these conversations. So build your tribe, build those people around you. It is so essential. It's so much easier and better to navigate life when you do it as a team and when you do it as a tribe. We were not meant to live isolated. So that's one thing I want to I wanna say uh, to men out there is never ever be afraid to ask for help and, you know, go arm in arm with a man who wants to do life with you or a group of men who want to do life with you. Yeah. That, that tribe is so valuable. We all need someone that we can go to who understands a little bit, you know, who uh, gets where you're coming from and can support you in that way and connect much more deeply than I think men in our culture do typically. It reminds me of actually a Friends episode where they talk about how the girls share everything with each other. And so they decided, the guys decided they were going to share everything. And um, it ended up backfiring on them because of course it wasn't, it was a, a comedy. It was not, you know, real life and real connection sharing. But it, it always reminds me of that when people talk about guys opening up and not typically sharing. And it's so important. And, you know, again, I can only speak from 
the mother female perspective, but we have built a mom tribe of moms who have kids with neurobehavioral and neurodevelopmental disorders. And it's everything. It is everything to have a group of women who understand in at least, you know, 70, 80% of what our parenthood is like, of what the struggle is like some days. And you just need that support. You really do need that support to be able to be vulnerable and to grow. Because if we are not vulnerable, we can't grow in our relationships. Super good stuff. So much good stuff. And I definitely encourage all the dads out there to listen to the Dad Edge podcast. I will have links of many different ways that you can connect with Larry and his work in the show notes. Um, His website is gooddadproject.com. You will have a link to the Alliance as well and the podcast and other ways to connect those show notes are going to be at parentingadhdandautism.com slash 099 for episode 99. I want to thank you again, Larry. Such a great conversation. So glad to have someone on the podcast representing the dads out there. Well, I, I so I so appreciate you being a voice out there for for us parents out there who are raising kids with ADHD and ADD. Thank you. It's, it's valuable work for sure, both of us. And so with that, we will conclude this episode. I'll see everyone next time. Thanks for joining me on the Parenting ADHD podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. And don't forget to check out my online courses, parent coaching, and mama retreats at parentingadhdandautism.com. Thank you.